Right, well, I wonder if you all feel great about yourself all the time. Some people seem to, don't they? Some people seem to be always bubbly, always confident, always really up for anything that's going, and really quite sort of settled and full of, of themselves, really. Not always like that underneath, is it? And if you maybe you're one of those people that appear like that, I hope so. Um, maybe you're one of those people that feel like that. I guess there might be one or two, although I have yet to meet one, I have to admit. Um, I suppose if God had had his way right from the beginning, there wouldn't have been any lack of confidence or lack of self-worth or self-esteem, as we've called it tonight, would there? Because everyone would have been totally, would have known themselves to be loved at the deepest level by God. You know, not just loved by anybody, loved by the creator of the universe, loved by the king of kings. He, would, he, well, he's, he meant for us to be know that right at the core of our being. So there would never have been any room for self-doubt or not loving ourselves or lack of self-confidence, would there? Not even in glimpses. But things aren't as God meant them to be, are they? But I think I believe that we can move much closer to the way God intended them to be if we can begin to understand a bit about how God loves us at the core of our being and how it was meant to be. Now, if what I'm saying with you, to you is striking some chords with you, well, I want, what I want to do is explore together where the roots of those feelings of insecurity or lack of self-confidence might be, where they might start, and, about how, and look at how they might be dress, addressed or healed or changed, which I know they can be. If it's not, and you're one of those people that are fully together, keep listening anyway, because you might know someone, you might recognise someone in what I say, and pass it on to them. Okay. So, rejection, the problem. I thought I'd have a look in the dictionary and see what it said. And it says, um, to discard or throw away as worthless. Oh, it's horrible, isn't it? Um, and what I've put there is that it's the antithesis of love. I suppose to throw someone away as if they're worthless would, could be considered to be the antithesis of love. Now, I suppose really, strictly speaking, if you looked in the English language dictionary and you said, what is the antithesis of love? I looked it up on Google or something. What is the antithesis of love? The opposite of love. It would probably say hate, wouldn't it? Now, I think... That's probably true, but I've said that rejection is the antithesis of love because love is what God wanted for us, isn't it, in the beginning, as we've already said. So, but Satan didn't want that for us. He wanted to, to steal it away from us and steal that knowledge of love in our hearts away. I think that, my, this is my own little theory, okay, um, that we, as human beings, if Satan had said to us, oh no, what you don't want love, you want hate, we'd have said, oh no, that's horrible, that's too horrible, we're not going to hate each other. We're not that nasty. So he didn't say that. What he said was, no, let's do something a bit more subtle. Let's reject each other. And you know what? We fell for it. And we've been rejecting each other. We've been rejecting God right from the very beginning. So when I say it's the antithesis of love, it's just not what God wanted for us. It's the opposite to what God wanted, to, wanted for us. We know Satan's crafty like that, don't we? It says in, in the NIV that in the garden, when um, God was saying to, to Adam and Eve, come to me, love me, enjoy my garden, enjoy the relationship with me, um, Satan went to Eve, and it says in, in NIV he was crafty, and he said to her, Oh, no, 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 it wasn't, it wasn't really, was it? It wasn't that um, you couldn't eat that apple. It was just that, um, you, you know, you, you could eat it, it won't be too bad. Whereas if he'd said to her, oh, no, it's fine, it's fine, just burn down the whole garden, she'd have said, oh, no, that's far too bad. I'm not going to do that. 
Do you see what I mean? So Satan was crafty then, and he's crafty now. He doesn't get us to hate each other, he gets us to reject each other. And rejection has become so entwined in our lives and how we do things that it's really had a profound effect on the way we relate to each other and the way we relate to God. I believe it's one of Satan's sharpest tools and that rejection is entwined in the way we relate to each other. And I'll go on and, and, and I hope you might see a bit of what I mean as I carry on. Okay, so I'm going to try and describe to you um, the symptoms of rejection, okay? What people might look like who, in their early life, usually, I say early life because it usually starts in early life, people who've been rejected, what sort of symptoms they might de- demonstrate, what you might recognise in someone or in yourself of someone who's um, been, uh, afflicted is a horrible old-fashioned word, someone who's been rejected and how you might be affected by it. Low self-esteem we mentioned at the start. It's not what God intended for us. He intended us to be sure of ourselves, not in an arrogant way, but because we recognise our identity as a child of the king. People who have been rejected um, in early life, and I'm going to talk about how that might happen later. I'm going to come on to that. just thought I'd give you a a little bit of a checklist to see if you could recognise any of this in yourself first. Um, Some people who have suffered rejection in early life find it difficult to show emotion and difficult to love other people. And when I, say, when I say they don't love other people or don't understand love, I mean more than just a sort of, oh, I love you kind of um, pop song kind of way, or I know God loves me like, you know, uh, a pretty little text you might have on your, on your Bible that doesn't really mean a great deal. I mean really know themselves to be loved right in the depth of their being in a way that changes your life. So, rejection stops us having relationships with with each other as they're meant to be and as God as they're meant to be. Some people live life in a sort of grey scale, never really loving, never really laughing, actually. And sometimes it means that they're protected from pain to a degree as well because they never really feel deep sorrow or deep loss or deep pain either. They live in a sort of grey world that's sort of in in between, where real emotion is not really fully experienced. And the trouble is, if you're in that grey land, you don't know it. Often you don't know it, because you don't know what you don't know, what you've never experienced, you don't know you're missing out on. I stood in church for 35 years, probably, as a Christian, and I was a Christian, but I didn't really know that God loved me. I knew God loved me, and I thought that was what it was to be a Christian. I thought that was everybody's experience of being a Christian. I knew God loved me in here. I came every week. I was very diligent, you know. But I didn't really know God loved me in my heart. I hadn't really met with God in in an experiential way. I knew God loved me here, but I didn't know it here in a life-changing way. And that can be the case for people who have been rejected in early life. They don't really get the emotional thing. They don't get the relationship thing. And it's very clever of Satan. It's very crafty of Satan to, t- to feed this lie that says, this is all there is. This is, you'd be satisfied. No. It's not true. You don't have to put up with it. The reason this happens seems to be that because we've been rejected or hurt in, that, in, our, in our early lives, we suppress our natural emotions. And 
rather than, because we believe ourselves to be unworthy right from an early age, we don't give our love to other people. We don't enter in, we don't let our emotions out because we're afraid we'll be rejected again. So what we do is we press it all down, hide it away and keep it in a safe place because we don't want to be hurt again. We don't want to be rejected again. Okay, so give away signs of someone who's been rejected or feels rejected is that they might be very reliant on what other people think of them. They might be desperately worried about their appearance, what they look like. They might be constantly seeking the approval of others. You know, how was that? What was it like? Do I look all right? What, you know, wanting to make sure that they get it right for everyone. Um, it's, it's interesting. If, if you give someone like this a compliment, they might almost always, not the odd time, but almost always say, if you say, nice dress, they, oh, I've had it years. Oh, it's only an old thing. Oh, it doesn't suit me, does it? You know, just those little things are telltale signs that people don't accept themselves, can't really accept. Actually, you look good in that. Thank you would be good, wouldn't it? Just thank you. Not qualified, not, oh, well, not really, not me. Telltale signs, they are. Okay. Please don't think if you ever do any of these things that I'm going to think, ah, rejected. <laughs> No, we all do all of this stuff sometimes, don't we? It's just when it builds up a picture that becomes a problem in your life or means that you're not living life to the full, then uh, I wanted to, to, to let you know tonight that you can do something about it. We all have all these things, don't we, to a greater or lesser degree. Okay, some more symptoms here. Oh, fear of discovery, I like this one. Uh, a friend of mine is a um, big shot consultant in London um, and he is really successful in his job. He gets paid a lot of money, travels all over the country inspecting local authorities. And do you know what he said? He said, do you know what? I'm really afraid that I'm going to be discovered, that someone's going to realise that actually I'm rubbish at this. Where's that coming from? He's not. He's great at it. He's very successful. Someone else said to me a couple of weeks ago, very highly respected professional and very capable, said... Do you know, I do my job, and I'm doing fine, but I'm afraid I might get found out. I'm afraid that people will realise, actually, I'm no good at this. So that's just another telltale sign, fear of discovery, and that's very common. Feeling rubbish, worthless, not, any, not able to make a difference. There were times when I was in work in the county council when I, I would sit on the stairs at the beginning of the day with my head in my hands and, and, and in tears, thinking, I don't know why they let me keep going back. I don't, can't imagine what difference I make in that place. The fact that I was getting promoted every other year didn't seem to occur to me that I might be doing something right. I sat, those moments when I sat on the stairs with my head in my hands, I could not see anything I could do to make a positive difference in that place. They're Satan's lies, but they're so insidious. We believe them. We believe them at our core. And it, it profoundly affects your life. It can do. So, striving to prove our, prove our worth. Does that chime with anyone? It's all right. You don't need to put your hands up. You know, always the next promotion. Always got to do better. Maybe. Perhaps you keep needing to move to a bigger house. Bigger house, bigger house, bigger house. Maybe um, 
It's the next career thing. It's the next, oh, academic achievements, that's a good one. Some people collect degrees. And, uh, you know, they're trying to prove themselves. And you know what they're trying to prove? They're trying to prove that they're worthy of a place in the, on this planet, that they're worthy of beings, that they are somebody, that other people might love them or respect them, or that God, indeed, might even notice them or take or love them. So we strive and strive to prove our worth. Well, this is a good one. Always thinking that someone else would do a better job than we would. Not volunteering for things, perhaps, because you think, well, actually, someone else would do that better than I would. I couldn't possibly do that well as someone else. And I think that the way, only way you're ever going to get anyone who feels like that to do anything is to say, say to them, you would do this really well, and then you might get them coming out of their shell. But it's common. It's very common. People don't do stuff because they think that someone else would always do it better. So, rejection is tied up with identity and image. And many people who are rejected never f really find fulfilment. They're still, they, they search and search. They change their job. They find they haven't got it. They, it's not there. They change their house. They find that the emptiness is still there. The restlessness means they can never find satisfaction. And, of course, this reinforces the sense of rejection. You know, I've got the bigger house and I'm still not it. I'm still not there. I'm still not really anybody. Okay. Of course. People who have a low self-esteem... I say people who are rejected. Okay. People who have a low self-esteem is what I mean, really. Um, become so that it's ingrained in their life in the way they do things. And because they've been rejected and hurt, they live a life which is all about fear of rejection. It's all about avoiding rejection. And sometimes people like that wear a mask. You know the people I talked about at the start that are always happy, always up for anything, always full of energy? I don't really believe that. But some people wear a mask that says, I am. I am every, anything you want me to be. Anything you want me to be, I'll be, because I so want you to accept me. Some people who have been rejected and feel, don't feel good about themselves at all, um, are very super sensitive. So that anything that's said, they are easily wounded. They feel um, yeah, easily wounded. So, you know, what some, one person might take as a joke, another person, who, uh, this type of person might take as a personal insult, some, uh, something that wounds them. Someone might say something very casually, and this person might take it really badly, really wrongly. Or they might interpret per per perfectly innocent um, actions of others as being personal insult to them. And uh, it's very hard, it's very hard work living like that. Very hard work. They might be a people pleaser doing anything to, to, to please others. They might be over-reliant on other, what other people think. I think we've talked about that. And they become, it's a bit self-fulfilling, you know, things, everything gets interpreted as being... Um, uh, against them, and it's, it's a very hard place to live, actually. Um, okay. this, this, I, was, I came I was along the internet looking at rejection, and I came about across Paul Simon's song, I am a rock, I am an island. Um, you might recognise some of what I've been saying. It says, I've built up walls, a fortress deep and mighty, that none may penetrate. I have no need of friendship. Friendship causes pain. It's laughter and it's loving I disdain. I am a rock. I am an island. 
So people might appear very open and friendly and be wanting to please you so much, but they, deep inside, want to actually be isolated. Don't talk of love. Well, I've heard that word before. It's sleeping in my memory. It, I won't disturb the slumber of feelings that have died. If I never loved, if I had never loved, I, would, I never would have cried. I'm a rock. I'm an island. So because people have been damaged in the past, and we're going to look at how that might have happened, they shut themselves away and say, not me. Don't come near me with your emotions. Don't come near me with your love. That's not for me. That's for those others. I'm a rock. I am an island. But wouldn't life be different if God had had his way from the beginning, as we said at the start? Every child would be conceived within a loving relationship, within marriage, where the sexual union is a joy and not a struggle, where the child is loved and anticipated from the start. And in the, in the early years, the child would know um, love and acceptance for who they are. They would be loved and cherished and enjoyed completely. And as they, grow in, as they grew into adults, if God had had his way, there'd have been mutual respect amongst us all. Affirmation of each other, friendship, concern, encouragement. What a wonderful place that would be. And I do believe that we can, we can become much more as if we... we but, but sadly, it's not like that, is it? We're often bruised and damaged. Um, but I believe that we can... We can Come, become into a relationship and become healed to such an extent that we can understand relationship and love. Okay. Um, let's look at some of the causes then. Just in case you recognise, just in case anybody here recognises themselves in anything I've said, maybe we should go on and look at some of the causes of rejection. How does this start in us? When I keep on waffling on about rejection, what do I mean? Where does it start? Well, what we find when we talk to people who, um, who have this sort of approach to life is that often the rejection has started way back before they were born. Now, that sounds a bit odd, doesn't it? It sounds a bit strange to talk about an experience before you were born because it's very unlikely that it's something you remember. But, but actually, sec secular scientists are discovering what those of us who've been, who pray with people in this sort of area have known for a very long time, is that actually, uh, even in the womb, as a developing fetus, we pick up the atmosphere around us. We pick up the attitude of our mother towards us. We pick up how she's feeling. We pick up uh, the, the environment into which we're going to be born. And if the pregnancy is unwanted or if there is strife in the household, or if for any other reason there's unhappiness or fear in the mother, but particularly, but also in the father, the child, the developing fetus, will pick that up and, and feel, am I really wanted here? This isn't, because I think, I, I, I feel that we're programmed to, to expect love and to know love. But actually, when the, when the child is developing and it's not what it picks up, they th it think, I say thinks, obviously it doesn't think in English, but the sense is, um, am I wanted here? Is this, is this, an this feels like an uncomfortable place to be. It might be that um, the child is born of the wrong gender. What I mean is sometimes parents set their heart on a particular gender of child, don't they? Um, or so, so, that, so the child might pick that up. Um, or... It might be a difficult childbirth. Sometimes there's trauma. Uh, people are affected by trauma when it's a very bad uh, birth. 
Um, and then as the child go, grows past, you know, past the early stages, the, goes, um, goes to school, um, there's, there's often, it can be a very hostile environment, can't it, at school? Um, and there's, there's oft, there can very often be bullying or, or unpleasantness there. Um, and, and, you know, children might be told by their parents, you're stupid, you're clumsy, you're naughty, that's a good one. I know that what the, what the parent actually means is that was a naughty thing to do or that was a stupid thing to do. But what the child hears is you're naughty, you're stupid. And they believe it because this parent or this teacher know what they're talking about, don't they? <coughs> they know everything. I know nothing, says, thinks the child. I believe it. I internalise it. I must be rubbish. School teachers don't always realise how powerful their words are, do they? One of the biggest things I have had to overcome, and it, oh, it sounds silly now, but when I was doing my GCSEs, my maths teacher said to me, Mr Bailey his name was, I remember, he said, Heather, you'll never get maths so level. Now, that said a lot more to me than I wasn't good at maths, because, okay, I'm not great at maths, but it said to me, what, the way he said it was, oh, you're so stupid. You know, there was a lot more in it than you're not good at maths. And that wounded me deeply. And I'll tell you what, it made me very determined to get maths. But, you know, teachers, I don't think, realised... I'm sure it was just a throwaway comment to him. He was just frustrated about something I'd done wrong again, probably. But his words were very powerful, and, and I think that's often the way. And I know this is an example people always give, but I've got to give it because it made a lot of difference to me. When I was at school and they were choosing sports teams... Do you remember that? And there was always Karen Hennig at the front, who was very athletic and exceptionally good at hockey. And um, Yvonne, can't remember what her surname was, who was equally beautiful and fast, I remember, and wicked with a hockey stick. There's a crowd of us in front of them, and they got to choose one by one who would be on their team. Do you remember if you'd done that? And always, always, unless I'd got my mum to write me a note, I'd be standing at the back, and Karen Hennig or Yvonne, whatever her name was, would say... Oh, there'd be me and someone else's whose name I can't remember who wasn't very good at sport either. And we'd be standing at the back and Karen or Yvonne would say, oh, to the other one, oh, you can have her. Because I wasn't very good at hockey. And, you know, that's damaged me. I went, I'm over it now, don't worry. But, you know, those things are really powerful, aren't they? Because what I heard was... We don't want you, for goodness sake. You're rubbish. Actually, I was rubbish at hockey. But I didn't hear that. I heard so much more. And so it goes in. It's those sorts of experiences in our life that do affect us. Um, absence of parents from school events. It's just a, well, you might think it's a small thing, but I know someone whose absolute passion was football. And when he was growing up, um, he, he lived and breathed football. His father couldn't understand football at all. thought it was absolutely ridiculous. And now, as a, as a man, this guy says he cannot remember once his father going to see him play football. And that's wounded him, because what he, what he, what he heard was, this is core to me, this is really important to me, but this main man in my life, who really knows everything about how the world works, because he's my father, says it's not important. Therefore, I'm not important. What I do doesn't matter. Actually, I'm rubbish. There's that message again, loud and clear. 
Um, divorce, or, you know, you, I think we know, don't we, that children sometimes take the blame for divorce, even though they were completely not to blame. But, you know, sometimes they take that on board as a, as a rejection, as the parent who leaves rejecting them personally. Okay, I've got a few more. Um, bullying and harassment at work, you know, bullying continues at work, that can be pretty nasty. I sat um, in a coffee bar at work uh, recently with a woman who'd worked for the county council for, I think it was 25 years. She'd really worked hard for them, she'd given them her best. And she said, do you know what, Heather? They've just told me I'm redundant. They don't want me here anymore. And if it hadn't been just for one particular manager who'd said, uh, who hadn't allowed her to be sent home, they, they were going to just send her home that afternoon. That's it, thanks, you know, clear your desk, gone. And that's a really powerful message, isn't it? What she heard, I mean, I know, because I work, worked in HR, that actually people get made redundant for very good reasons. It doesn't, mean any, it doesn't mean that they're no good at all. It can be a really positive thing, in fact. You know, it just means that their particular skills don't fit to the way the, what the organisation needs. But that's not what she heard. What she heard was, you're rubbish. We don't need you anymore. Go, as soon as you can. It's profound, the effect we have on it, it has on us. And uh, some people it doesn't seem to bother. Some people just seem to be able to bounce back. And if you're one of those people, great. Most of us, I think. I could safely say most of us aren't. Most of us would struggle with that sort of thing. Um, I've got death of the parent there. That means I'm really thinking of when they're, when they're young. When children are young and a parent dies, actually, uh, they can take that as if that parent has rejected them and left them, which is very hard. It's hard all round, isn't it? Um, cruel words, especially from authority figures or from people who are supposed to love us are powerful and that comment at the end is an important one it's perception that counts um, in you know in terms of the damage though the, the wounds that happen from various incidents it's the perception of the person who sees it that counts last week I was in Gloucestershire and it was very beautiful countryside and I was out very early one morning running and I came up hit the brow of a hill and there in the road, just coming out from the side, was an animal, a little animal. Now, I really don't like rats. And it's the tails, you know? The way they go fatter and then thinner and thinner, and the way they're all pink and flat. I hate them. So it's a rat. I thought it was a big black rat coming out of the side uh, into the middle of the road. And it wandered sort of slowly into the middle of the road. And my stomach heaved. I could feel a knot in my stomach. I thought, oh, no. I'd like you to know I kept on going. I didn't stop, but I thought, oh, no, I don't want to see a rat. So I was churning. It was horrible. I got um, a few more yards up. There was plenty of time for me to feel pretty horrible. I got him a few more yards, and it flicked its tail up in the air, and I saw, actually, this tail was furry and thick. It wasn't a rat at all. It was a squirrel. And the squirrel, now I don't mind squirrels, you see. And that knot in my stomach just dissipated completely. And I, it was sort of replaced by a slightly cuddly feeling, you know. It was, oh, it's a little squirrel. Lovely. Now, it was exactly the same thing. It was only that halfway across the road I got a better view of it because it put its tail in the air. But do you see what I mean? The fear I felt and the, the, act, the, you know, the, the reaction I had to it was about what I perceived it was, not what it actually was. So in all these examples, like the redundancy thing, might be a perfectly good reason for someone to be made redundant, but the perception is, I'm rubbish. The child in the womb, um, the mother might not want a pregnancy, might not want another baby. It's 
the, but the perception of the child is the mother doesn't want me personally. You know? Um, so it's all about perception. It's not really what people intend to do to you. It's how you take it on board. Um, I've just put something else in here that um, I hope might resonate with someone. I, um, people say, don't they, sticks and stones will break my bones, but words will never hurt me. It's not true, is it? It's not true. Words do hurt us and go deep sometimes. And I think the cruel thing about that is, you know, we're not, it, we, somehow we're told we're not supposed to let words hurt us, aren't we? We're told we should be tougher than that. But actually, they do. So I thought I'd just show you this. Sticks and stones may break my bones, but words can also hurt me. Stones and sticks break only skin, while words are ghosts that haunt me. Slant and curved the word swords fall, to pierce and stick inside me. Bats and bricks may ache through bones, but words can mortify me. Pain from words has left its scar, on mind and heart that's tender. Cuts and bruises now have healed. It's words that I remember. Okay, so is there an answer? Do we have to just live under this weight of inferiority, of lack of self-worth, of lack of confidence, feeling, oh, I'm rubbish, really. It's just that people, can't, people are going to find me out one day. No, we don't. The antidote to uh, rejection is acceptance. And I have to tell you that at Burlington, we're finding that people all over the place are breaking free from feeling rubbish about themselves. And you know, it changes people's lives. And the way they're doing that is through prayer, and it's through becoming, coming to a realisation of certain truths. I was chosen by God. That's amazing! I was chosen by God um, before the creation of the world. Me! You know, I wasn't just some random accident... God chose me before the world began. How can I feel rubbish about myself? I was planned. My parents might not have planned me, but boy, did God plan me. He planned me before the creation of the world. He knew my name, and he marked me out as precious. But you know, some of you sitting here will know that in your head. Yes, I know God loves me. I knew it. I knew it for a very long time in here. But you really need to really know it. It needs to transfer to your heart to really realise what that means, your identity as a son of God, a daughter of the King of Kings. Acceptance, we know as human beings, don't we, between each other, acceptance is a very powerful thing. And the most wonderful thing about this particular acceptance with God is that he accepts us exactly as we are. So all that striving stuff we talked about, you know, the rejected person striving to be liked, striving to do the right thing, striving to look right, um, forget it. God's not going to love us if we read our Bible more, if we pray more, if we're kinder to others, if we're gentle to our spouse, if we're more loving, if we're more gentle. Yes, all those things are important, but it's not going to make God love us anymore. It's not going to make God accept us anymore. And acceptance is really the key in this. It's knowing yourself to be accepted and loved unconditionally. Alice, my daughter, has just arrived in Canada. She's um, gone there for a year and um, she's gone with her friend Scott. Scott, they both arrived in the country. 
Scott has an English passport, Alice has a Canadian passport. They went up to the thing to let them in. Scott got whisked away to some little room somewhere and interrogated on why he wanted to come into the country. He didn't feel very welcome at all. He felt he got in by the skin of his teeth and that they were watching him every move. Alice flashed her Canadian passport and they welcomed her in, ushered her in. She knows nothing about Canada. She's never been there. All she knows is that she's entitled to a passport because her granddad was born there. That's the difference. You see, she, her, the feeling she got of that country was that it was warm, it was welcoming. She belonged. It wasn't about anything she'd done. It was just about who she was, the granddaughter of a Canadian. Scott, didn't matter what he did, he was, you know, he was on trial. You see what I mean? Acceptance is a wonderful thing. It makes your whole life seem different, the whole experience different. And the wonderful thing about it is nothing we do will make God love us any more and nothing we do will make him love us any less. Now, you'll hear us say that from the front a lot. You'll probably hear us say it time and time again. And you'll probably start thinking, oh, they're on about that again. Think about it. Really, really let it sink in. Let that truth sink into your heart. Because it is life-changing. Okay. So, a little bit more about finding healing. Psalm 139. Is, um, is, is, is one which many people on this journey of healing have found helpful. And it says there, it says, and I really encourage you to read this. If, you, if anything I've said at all tonight, um, is, you think there might be an element of truth for you in it, um, go home and read the whole of one Psalm 139. Pray about it, think about it, let it sink in and then read it again and again. And read it every day for a while and see if you can really let this truth sink into your heart. It says, I praise you because I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Your works are wonderful, I know that full well. My frame was not hidden from you when I was made in the secret place, when I was woven together in the depths of the earth. Your eyes saw my unformed body. All the days ordained for me were written in your book, before one of them came to be. And so it goes on. And then not only that, not only does it speak right into our acceptance by God and our being planned by him, but also it gives us a prayer to pray to help us to really understand that and take it home in our hearts. Search me, O God, and know my heart. Test me and know my anxious thoughts. See if there is any offensive way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. So, what does that say? That says, search me and find anything in me that does not reflect your purity, is the, is the version I know, because it's from a Vicky, Vicky Beeching song. Um, we're asking God to show you what is it that stops you knowing this love and acceptance? What is it in you? And it might, for many people, it is a rejection in themselves, an inability to love themselves. What is it in me that stops me knowing a real relationship with you as you intended? And uh, if you read it, if you pray it and pray it, you'll find that it will make a world of difference.